Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. If you follow us on social media, you'll know that we have decided to start a new series on the podcast where we do a deep dive into other historical mysteries, not just Jack the Ripper. We've chosen to do these episodes in a book club format, and in each episode, critique a specific book dedicated to a hopefully interesting mystery. We had planned for this episode to be the first in the series, but in conversation, we decided a prologue might be helpful, where we establish what our individual reading interests are, our individual approaches to books, what we consider to be qualities necessary to be considered a good book, and in short, lay out our biases and our preferences so that they are established prior to us critiquing a work an author has presumably labored long over. I am your host, Ali Ryder, and joining me today for this episode of Off the Shelf, the prologue, is Jonathan Menges and John Reese. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for joining me. So I guess the best way to kick this off is just to ask if either one of you has ever been in a book club before, or is this your first time? Um, I, I've, I've been to one once, an online book club meeting. Menges? I'm trying to remember. Um... I don't really think so, but, you know, college literature courses, you know, everyone sits around in a circle and discusses a, a book. I don't know. Isn't that basically what a book club is? Yes, but usually with more wine and snacks. Yeah. So <laughs> considering we're recording this at like seven o'clock in the morning, wine should probably not be on the menu. Um, so if course, there's a protocol involved, then you would probably have to explain it to me. There's not if really there a protocol rules, involved. It's usually, follow. you know, you just you have to be and, drunk. Yeah, be drunk and, and talk shit about books. Um, so like, I'm very, I'm, I'll be honest, like, I belong to a book club, we meet every month. And, and I am like, the, the worst in the book club, because most of the books we read are like, you know, Oprah Winfrey, book of the month, Reese Witherspoon, book of the month, just crap. And all the other people in my book were like, oh, I thought it was fine. It was great. And I'm like, this was absolute garbage. Where was the editor? Who did this? Like, I'm terrible in book club because, you know, I, I, I have like sort of like a metaphor for reading a book in my head, which is basically, um, you know, reading a book is kind of like you're taking a journey, right? You're taking a drive down a road and every like bad incidence of writing, every plot hole, every um, bad editing decision, every uh, boring, you know, language choice. It's like a pothole in the road, you know, that just kind of like bumps you and knocks you out of your nice, smooth journey. And, you know, some books are worse than others. Some are like the entire road is pitted with potholes and you just have to get off that road and find a new one and, and abandon that one. Some are a pretty good ride. It's just a few potholes here and there that kind of jar your brain. And so I sort of look at a, a book as like, how many times am I reading it? And I'm knocked out of the narrative by this sort of jarring uh, writing or editorial mistake. Um, and I'm terrible. I'm really bad at it. Like I, I pick up on the littlest things that nobody else picks up on. And, you know, I, I have friends who ask me to read their books and, uh, I have friends who don't talk to me anymore because they ask me to like edit their books. And I'm just like, because everybody thinks they can write a book, you know, like nobody thinks that they can pick up a paintbrush and they're suddenly going to be 
Michelangelo or Monet, but everybody thinks they can write a book because they write, you know, 47 text messages a day. Oh, I can write a book. So and you, you didn't like this book. Is that what you're saying? Because of the number of potholes you encountered? No, uh, no, I'm not saying that specifically about this book. I'm just sort of setting out my framework for how I approach reading a book. And for me, a book is like I have this metaphorical journey. A book is supposed to take me somewhere. And there are two parts to that journey. You know, one is the scenery out your window, what you're looking at, which is, you know, your plot, your characters, um, the story itself. And the other is the mechanics of writing. That's the road you're writing on. How smooth, how well skilled is that author in paving the way through that landscape that you're traveling through. And, you know, when you, you can have a very well-written book, it's a very smooth ride, but out your window, it's a toxic wasteland that you're traveling through where the characters are bad, the plotting is bad, the story's bad. And, you know, that's not really a, a trip I want to take. So, you know, take the first exit, find a new road to travel. Or conversely, what I find most often is some people might have a really good story, but they don't have those fundamental writing skills. And then, you know, it's like you're, you have beautiful scenery, you have good characters, good plot, a good basic story, but the road is just so rough to ride because, you know, they don't have the fundamental skill in writing. And it's like just constantly bouncing down a road full of potholes that keep jarring me out of my appreciation of the story because it's such a rough ride that I just can't enjoy it. So, you know, for me, it's like, that's like sort of like how I, how I, how I view it. Like you could have a really well-written book that's not taking me anywhere I want to go, or you can have a really great story, but it's just the fundamental mechanics are so bad that it's too jarring to my brain to keep having to slog my way through this book. I understand the potholes that, that, that were problematic with this book, but the way I look at it is, is, um, is whether it's nonfiction or fiction. I mean, fiction can get, you can get away with more potholes in fiction because you have to you know, um, acquaint yourself with the particular writer's style. Um, like, for instance, if you're reading James Joyce or William Burroughs or um, Henry Miller or any, like, literary novelist, what is one person's pothole is another, is an, is another is is a writer's style that you have to kind of get used to and once you're used to that particular style then it then it goes smooth smoother oh yeah absolutely and stylistic choices are going to be you know definitely based on reader preference and author preference and those just come down to opinions but you know i can dislike somebody's style and they can still be you know a great author regardless of whether it's my particular taste or not. How about you, John Reese? What what do you look for in a good book and what makes you decide what's a good book and what isn't? I don't know. I, I, I definitely approach fiction and non-fiction differently. Um, I think I'm more likely to put down a bad fiction book than I am a bad non-fiction book. 
I think I think what really jars me with fiction books when, they, when I think them bad is the dialogue. Mm-hmm. If the dialogue doesn't seem like it's an actual person saying it. It's that stilted sort of, hi, or, my name. Or when, or when someone tries to do like accents or syntax in the dialogue and it just seems like they, they're just someone trying to do it. Like, oh, I'm trying to give a good example. Um, oh, someone recommended a book by China Melville to me. Oh, crack, I think it is. And I think I got about 60 pages in and I just had to put it down because they introduced this character and the way the character was talking was just so unrealistic because they were trying to do him as like a, a bit of a cockney wide boy and it just didn't seem... Yeah, um, yeah and also, you know... It's the same thing, you know, if like the author's voice, the narrative doesn't come across as natural or flowing. So that's, that's fiction. With non-fiction, it's, I don't know, it, it, there's, there's different different things that will put me off the book and stuff, like endless filler. Like, you know, there's a difference between having background information in a non-fiction book and then, or, you know, having 30 pages of something because they just didn't have space. Or, you know, or they needed more, they needed more stuff in the book. So yeah, I think that's my main thing in nonfiction. It's just filler. And what would you consider like the epitome of a good fiction book to you, and the epitome of a good nonfiction book that you've read in each category? Um, epitome of a good fiction book, I would say, hmm, Night Watch by Pratchett. Mm, that's a good book. And I'm trying to think of a really good non-fiction really good non-fiction book um epitome of a brilliantly written one east west street by philippe sands all right jonathan menges same questions to you how do you approach reading books and what do you consider what are you looking for in a good book what takes you out of a book how do you approach books in terms of this is you know when you're reading it like this is a good book versus this is a bad book um I don't read much fiction anymore, but but with uh, the type of fiction I do read um, has a lot of the author's voice present in the book. So I'm kind of like old school as far as what I read in fiction. So I read a lot of classic literature so uh, and a lot of Russian literature. So um, it, it probably doesn't apply, you know, because we're talking about big honking novels like like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and stuff. And I like um, fiction novelists, if you would call it fiction, like along the lines of like uh, a Henry Miller, where the author, the author's voice comes through in both of those cases. And uh, the case of Russian novelists and, and um, American novelists of like the 50s, where uh, I don't know if you would call it quite fiction, but it's a fictionalized version uh, of the author. So those are the types of fiction books I like. Um, Character, Um, but particularly when the author's voice is really present in the characters. I don't read um, much like mainstream fiction at all. So I really can't comment on that. Nonfiction is what I read um, obsessively. And... um, an example of uh, a really good nonfiction book I've read recently would be a book called Empire of the Summer Moon about um, Quana Parker, 
and the Comanches, Old West, you know, um, history that um, talks about the kidnapping of Cynthia Ann Parker. You might be familiar with the story. John Wayne made a movie about it called The Searchers. It's one of these uh, captive narrative type things. Um, white folks being kidnapped by Native Americans and raised um, in the tribes. And um, it has filler, you know, with a lot of nonfiction books, you can't, there's, that we've seen before and, and discussed some of these books on this, on, on our show, you can't help but put in that padding or that filler. So I was reading Empire of the Summer Moon at the same time that my dad was reading it. And, you know, um, that book goes into probably a good 20 pages of this discussing the Comanche's use of horses and how they were the first tribe to really, the first Native American tribe to domesticate the horse and how they rode the horse and how they were able to fire uh weapons from the horse, how they are able to slide off the side of the saddle and almost ride parallel, horizontal to the horse to use the horse to block as a shield, right? And then somehow fire around the horse. Like, so there here's like 20 or 30 pages about their mastery of horses, right? My dad hated it. He would text me and complain, oh my God, how many more pages do we have to read about how the Comanches uh, rode horses. But see, I love that stuff. I thought it served the purpose of the story really well. Um, it wasn't, it might, you know, some might consider it filler, but um, if, it, if it supplies really good amount of necessary background, so later on when they are um, raiding villages or going up against cavalry, you already know the author doesn't then have to explain it down the road. You know what I'm saying? You already know why the Comanches kicks kick their ass because that's because that part has been established at more towards the beginning of the book. I don't know if that answers your question, but no, that's I, pretty much yeah. It's it's interesting because like everybody reads books for different purposes and gets different things out of it. And you know, I'm the worst one by far in my book club because. I am very easily taken out of a narrative by bad language choices. You know, when authors don't vary their sentence structure and it just becomes this repetitive sort of simplistic sentence structure or uh, details I know are inaccurate. You know, I was reading, I was reading a story that was written by someone that was based in a country that it was clear the author had never been in. And I'd been in the country. And they were putting in details about people living there that were 100% American, that had no more basis in um, the, the country that, that they had set this book in. And I was just like, and every time I read a detail or a sentence where it's jarring to me and it pulls me out of the narrative, that it's like a shrick in your brain. You know, it's like that, it's just like that little shred of, ugh, that's, ugh. And the more of those that you get. So, and, and it goes like to filler too. Like the longer you're reading something that you don't see the relevancy to what's, what, what does this have to do with the story? But I also think like with filler, one man's filler is another man's interesting background detail. Like you said, like you were fascinated by it. So you, you didn't see it as filler. Whereas mm -hmm. your father was like, this just 
get on with get on with the story. I, I right. get the, on. The, with the filler story. has to have a payoff. Yes, there has to be a down point. down the road right. later in the book. Right. Exactly. You, you, you need to have a reason. If there's not a reason for this information, why is it in the book? You know, and nine times out of 10, especially in nonfiction, not in nonfiction books. What I see a lot of times is an author has done so much research into a particular topic. They have this wealth of information in their head and they think it's all relevant. They think it's all, and, and they, they, they've like, I've researched this. I put my time and effort into it. I want to put this on the page and they don't have the capacity to self-edit and go, just because this is interesting, doesn't mean it's relevant. Doesn't mean that, that it needs to be included in the book. And I don't think it's necessarily filler from the author's perspective, because I'm sure to the author, they researched it. They're fascinated by it. It's vitally important information. But to the re reader, you're just like, can we can we get on with this, please? Can we can we get to the point? Yeah. It's like it sounds like people having a conversation in the pub with me when a topic I'm interested in, you know, is just touched on broadly in the conversation, and then you know, you just uh, you've got to share all the things you know about it. Maybe that's the person I am. Just deep dive into it. Or you or or you you uh, as an author might might believe that well that's what's needed like maybe they they're under the impression that there's a set of rules they must follow like if i was going to write a biography of Crippet, i i would start by researching his antecedents and how they immigrated from the the east coast to the midwest uh I'd go back two generations before Crippen was even born. And um, nobody needs be, to know be, that. Right. <laughs> as you say, no one needs to know that. But as an, an author, you might presume that that is one of the rules that you must follow, that let's go back and, and tell everything. Now, like I said, if it has a payoff, like for instance, if the Crippens were prosperous, and their family, two generations removed from H.H. Crippen, were successful business person, people when they moved to the Midwest and made a lot of money. But over the course of a couple of generations, that fortune was uh, destroyed, which, would, which then might have an impact on how H.H. Crippen became who he was because of uh, whatever financial trouble, you know, if it, if it, if it has a payoff down the road, right. Once prosperous family becomes destitute, right. In a couple of generations and, it, and it's, then it would be relevant, but you have to kind of, uh, I guess, decide what, what, what can have a payoff down the road and what, and what, you know, what you care about, might not be what the the reader cares about at all. So the best example I can think of is um, Rob House's book, um, Case of Scotland Yard's Prime Suspect, where, um, you know, pogroms um, in Eastern Europe are um, gone into in a fair bit of detail from what I remember in the book. And it, it's one of those things that I think, you know, you may vaguely know what a pogrom is, familiar with, uh, you know, particularly the Ripper case and stuff like that. But you know, his deep dive really gave a lot of important background information to me. Um, anyway, there. And I think it's the same as well. If you, a book on 
um, Chapman, um, again, Ripper, suspect, George Chapman, Severin Kozlowski, that goes into felching and barber surgeons and stuff like that. It It's stuff that you may vaguely know what it is, but the deep dive, which some people may consider filler, is can be important background information. Right. And in the case of Rob House's book, um, within that discussion of the pale of settlement and everything and the history of the Polish people under Russian occupation and tyranny pays off Mm. in in, um, showing when um, certain members of the Kosminski family fled that particular area and immigrated to London what order they 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 left in and think in and um who was left behind and for how long later does have relevance when you're tracing the Kosminski family in London right and who was living where when you know and being able to navigate the census reports and things like that a ton of background information like um like the pogroms and, and stuff in um Poland paid off in Rob's case. Uh, How important to you guys is good writing? Like, do you really notice the structure of writing when you're reading? Like a good sentence versus a bad sentence, a good paragraph versus a bad paragraph. Like one of the things I always point to, and I'm the worst English major in the history of English majors, because I used to get into fight with fights with like one of my particular professors. Um, I hate Shakespeare because while I believe he writes beautiful sentences, he, he crafts impeccable sentences, his plots break my brain. They are the worst constructed, worst um, plotted plays. His plays are terrible in terms of plots, not all of them, but a vast majority of them. And basically, like I would always argue, I'm like, he was a vulgar comedic you know his comedies are I'm like I don't like a fart joke in 20th century why do I want like a fart joke in 16th century a fart joke's a fart joke you know if, if, if I don't like it now why would I like it just because it's written in flowery language 400 years ago um and you know I know Shakespeare is held up as this like ah uh, example and he because he's great at crafting amazing sentences but, you know, like I always point to comedy of errors as as the one that broke me. Like I had to take a whole Shakespeare set and, and comedy of errors. I think it was the second one we, we reread and it broke me because it was literally if y'all haven't read Shakespeare's plays, a man is sailing the world looking for his twin brother. He knows he has a twin brother and he's looking for him. He arrives at a place where everyone is mistaking him for somebody else. And rather than going, hey maybe this is where my twin brother lives. He's like, oh, these people are all insane and crazy and mad. It is the stupidest flipping thing I've ever read in my life. And I'm supposed to read this and cry. I'm like, no, this, this is just dumb. Shakespeare is an idiot. He's a, he's Adam Sandler of the 16th century. And I don't care how well he writes a sentence. If your plot doesn't uphold your writing, that's a significant failing in your um it's like somebody who has a beautiful singing voice but like can't like get the notes right you know what I'm saying like I don't know it's just so to what 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 do you guys hold the two 
equal or could you read like do you read Shakespeare and just like you get absorbed into the language and the details don't matter as much because the language sort of carries you along because I know a lot of people are like that and that's totally fine I mean there are books I've read where the language does carry me along Shakespeare just does not happen to be one of them for me so as, as someone who is a is a fan of Shakespeare and yeah. I, I perform Shakespeare um I agree. Some of his, his stuff is utter, utter shit. Particularly the early, the early comedies. Um, you know, the late, the late fifteen eighties, early fifteen nineties. There's really some ropey stuff there. Um, but I, I, over time, I think he does. I, I don't know if the words evolve, but more like he's he's able to do what he wants more. Um, and I, I think he's doing. You know, that's you know. He sold out basically at the start, you know. He's he's just penning anything that's gonna get the people in the seats, you know. They 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 like a joke about a bum and uh, you know a, a dog and uh, you know some running about and uh, stuff like that, you know. Um, and then as he gets more popular, he's able to do stuff that you know is more you know he can the, the stuff the stuff that we think of highbrow, you know. Then you right. get the Hamlet, the Leah, um, and stuff like that. But at the same time, he's also writing for popular audiences right. it, it's, it's the soaps of the day it's the yeah, it's melodrama and yeah it, yeah it, it's uh you know and if you look at a lot some of the contemporaries of shakespeare particularly in the 50 early 1590s they don't consider him a good author um it's um he's not it, it, it's not until i'd say you know probably you know there, there are some early ones that are um you know Pretty good. Richard III's got some good moments, but it's also got some moments thinking, oh, that's quite rough. There's always good moments in it. Yeah. I, I won't deny that. Like I, I, yeah. I truly like I do think he can write a good sentence and and craft some lines, obviously, that stick yeah. for hundreds of years. But oof, and that's lot. kind of like how like I've read more books about Shakespeare than I probably read by Shakespeare. And 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 a lot of these this classic literature, you, you can't really read like in a vacuum um so like a, I think it was uh Bloom who wrote Shakespeare and the invention of the human or something like that where um, um yeah 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 who, okay. where where a lot of the stuff that Shakespeare um as uh you had just said you know these these uh things that that he um that were then copied for a hundred a hundred years so like, so you read about more of their impact on literature yeah. than, than that, that they were like great at the time. Mary Shelley's the same kind of, or like if you've read um, early like um, vampire novels, mm-hmm. like uh, Trey Lawney, I believe his name was, he wrote, um, I don't remember the name of it, but the, um, the, the, the set um, of, of authors with uh, Lord Byron and Mary Polidori. Henry, huh? Polidori. Yeah, so, so um, there were uh, earlier Dracula vampire novels yeah. uh, mm-hmm. that came out prior to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein um, that aren't that great to read. Um, not, uh, but you read them anyway because they because those certain themes then are, are were invented and they carry over into other books. Yeah. And and with Mary Shelley, like you, people read Frankenstein, and and it's her first novel, and probably her best. Yeah. But then when you go on to read 
her later novels that aren't as good as Frankenstein, that have a lot of problems, um, you don't read them because you expect them to be great books. You read them because she is sprinkling into her novels what would later be considered science fiction. Yeah. Frankenstein has a lot of it. Yeah. Um, but she continues this pattern of almost inventing science fiction in books that really aren't that great but 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 you read them because you're you you are you understand the broad sense of what is being created here yeah um that carries over into you know other writers and influences other writers who might be better writers than they are you know that kind of thing so looking at like shakespeare in, in a vacuum and saying well you know he's garbage you could say the same thing for a lot of authors books oh i do it's not so much much (laughs) that it's more of their uh, impact on the literature yeah than than how they exist like as a standalone i i i would argue that you're going back to shakespeare that shakespeare shouldn't be read it was never designed what? to be read. It was designed to be listened to, to watched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that, I think that's why it's difficult with Shakespeare from that point of view to compare it to something you're reading on a page because it, it really loses um, something in that. Um, well, what Jonathan was saying about Mary Shelley, um, for example, I, I'd also um, say that kind of Conan Doyle fits into that. Uh, that uh, uh, what's that? I can't think of the word is um, that, that, that criteria. Uh, that's probably not the right word. You know, if you look at the the the, the two the first two Sherlock Holmes novels, Study in Scarlet, Sign of Four, they're they're not very good. Um, Study in Scarlet has got again, it's got some good moments, but most of it seems to be you know a weird thing about the Mormons and stuff like that. It's not until the short story when Conan Doyle, you know. Um, really gets Holmes, and Holmes suits the short story format more, the exception being Hound of the Baskervilles, which is a fantastic novel, but uh, in my opinion. But the, yeah, it's, it's the early Sherlock Holmes. You kind of have to read it to get an introduction to the character and stuff, but then it's the short stories where the character really comes alive. Um, well, most of the short stories, some are absolutely terrible, as, as we, you know, quite often discuss in Albert Family. Quick plug there, but yeah. Yeah, and Edgar Allan Poe's kind of the same way, where uh, there's a f- Poe fanatics, we all know, out there. But for me, it, it, it's like not that great and not that, in- like, I just can't get into a lot of Poe's short stories um, or poetry. Um, I just don't get, uh, but I understand his influence so so like where so um you know these were these early authors um now poe wrote some really good short stories but i but he wrote i he wrote some not so good ones too i don't know i just i'm just not not a huge fan um but i understand that he was like an early influencer and so whether that is a part of the appeal or not i'm not sure there are, I mean, there are folks out there who just live in the Gothic, who look upon Gothic literature and stuff as um, 
as some of the greatest stuff ever written. Um, no, I'm going to I'm going to make a, a confession here. I have tried on a repeated basis. I like urban fantasy. I like science fiction to a degree. I like fantasy. I like horror to some degree. Um, I have tried repeatedly to read Lovecraft. And for whatever reason, I just cannot get into Lovecraft. I, I, I've made it a mission in life that I'm going to read Lovecraft because I understand it's sort of like a, a seminal work in terms of, you know, influencing a genre. And I have either of you ever read because I cannot and I'm like, I'm, I, I need a, I need a teacher. I need a book buddy to just read Lovecraft with me because and be like, no, here, and I'm like, I get it. It's the whole and I'm like, I Lovecraft's it's a, diff, it's a difficult one because the stories and the plots are good the imagination you know thing but the writing Ugh. does hold it back yeah um and then you know you've also got the the unpleasant attitudes uh, that the man had um which you know are reflected in you know quite a few of the stories um just in offhand comments um hey i'm a woman who has to read all the literature written before <laughs> women had rights and the kinds of things they say about women in 90 percent of all of these <laughs> books so i mean i i get everybody bangs on about well you know oh this book and and again you have to look at the times if i have to sit there and you know listen to women being called jumped up strumpets or whatever uh yeah. because she showed her ankle or what have you uh, you have to, in some cases, excuse ignorance yeah. a, a, around the time. Not saying that yeah. racism or sexism or any ism is ever a good no. thing. Yeah. But I get very annoyed when everybody is very, well, we should ban this author from 200 years ago because he said this thing about X category, but it's like, oh, we'll just ignore the massive rampaging sexism in all yeah. of these works that's fine because yeah. again it's always fine to be misogynistic or sexist we can still do that just perfectly fine on tv and get away with it all the live long day but god forbid you disparage any other category of people that's bad and i think it's all bad so we're either going to have to look at all of it as a piece like do we just dismiss all of history's writing because they weren't woke they weren't enlightened back then or I get really tired of apologists for, or you know what I mean? Or like, well, he did say this, you know? And it's like, yeah, did you see the 52,000 things he said about women in that book too? Like, right. It's a, it's a, a really tough debate. And, you know, we might be coming across like we have really bad taste in, in, uh, <laughs> in reading. Like, you know, um, Stephen King is someone who I've never been able to get into. Same. Um, I've read, uh, maybe three of his books but I know people are out there who've read every single thing he's written everything single thing he's written under different yeah. names and you know that man needs an editor like nobody's business talk about people who right. don't know what doesn't need to be put on a page but but at the same time like I'm the type of person this is the way I read if I find something that I really like I will be the same way I'll read every single thing that author has ever written yeah. I'll read their diaries. I'll read their letters. I'll read. I mean, mm. uh, I I just get obsessed. The, so the same way um, a person could get be obsessed with Stephen King, I I would be obsessed with someone like that Vladimir Nabokov. 
yeah. uh, who's problematic to a lot of people. Um, he, uh, he, why I think David, would he be? Um, mm. <laughs> what would be problematic? Because the only book that anyone's I ever know. written, read that he's written was Lolita. Lolita, yeah. I, know. Um, I, was, but, I was being funny, but yeah. <laughs> but, it, but, you know, there are other books that Nabokov has written um, going all the way back to when he was, before he even ever came to the United States, you know, and all through his whole career, that um, I think um, Nabokov is one of the best um, writers ever of the 20th century. Um, and, um, but yeah, cancel Nabokov, you know. I because, agree. He's because, of, <laughs> because of Lolita, right? Well, I mean, you touched on something briefly when you started that, that I do think is worth mentioning because you said, oh, well, we might be coming across like we don't have good taste in literature because we're sort of talking about populist or popular kind of literature, which is interesting to me because I very much like I was a I was a school teacher for many, many years. And I always thought that school curriculum is, in my opinion, garbage because there is this, in my opinion, elitist, snobbish um, emphasis on historical good writing. And I don't believe that the purpose of like early school and, and, and high school, like even up to like 10th grade, I believe we should be encouraging a love of reading in, in children. And you are not going to interest people in reading, you know, Herman Melville, Moby Dick. Like what does Moby Dick have to do? I'm like, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm talking like, I understand Moby Dick. I am not disparaging the influence of Moby Dick and, and Melville and all of that. But to the average kid living in um, New York City, a story about a dude going out and hunting a white whale is not something that they're like, there are themes in that book that you could find in more accessible books for yeah. people. And I, I believe we discourage reading by being kind of tied to these sort of uh, elitist ideas of what constitutes a good book or yeah. uh, literature, quote unquote, literature. And I'm, you know, I'm using the capital L there, literature. And I have always been very one, like I used to do a lot of bridging um, with my students, especially because I, I dealt with special education populations who tended to be low readers. And I would do a lot of bridging where it's sort of like bridging is like you take a, a of course, now my, I, I need more coffee for this, but like a, a, a famously literature work and you bridge it to a more popular young adult novel that has similar themes and similar um similar ideas but more accessible language for so it would be, be kind of like what pratchett does a lot yeah um, you know he he takes themes of classic literature and novels and it, you know in, includes them in his in his work um i personally uh, think pratchett is a brilliant brilliant author who comes up with themes of racism and classism and uh, you know sexism and all the isms and puts them in a fantasy world where you know races and religions are typified by dwarves and trolls as opposed yeah. to black and white or um you know uh religion versus religion and and i find it he he puts the themes across in a very accessible very entertaining and very funny manner which makes those ideas more accessible yeah. 
I can. So you're arguing, Ali, for um, the the, a, a new the newer generation to just basically be reading um, stuff like Pratcher or whoever who who uh, uses the same themes, right? Um, that might have been done by a Melville or yeah. But I but, can teach literature themes with pretty much any book that has that. When you add the additional element of a 15th century language style, you know, if we're going back to 16th mm-hmm. century, uh, you know, a, 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 a hard language style on top of, I'm trying to teach these kids, you know, allegory. I'm trying to teach them figurative language. I'm trying to teach them all of these things. And then you add on top of that an inaccessible language because these are classics these are quote-unquote literature Mm -hmm. like what's more important to foster a love of reading and then get them to read as opposed to making reading a chore that they have to slog through right and maybe I mean I I think that that the um even though it's all white men of course (laughs) I think that um eventually May, and, and maybe you'd argue for it, it to be at a higher grade level or or something uh, teaching um, the foundation of of literature is really important you I don't know, think that's important first... unless you're going to college literature programs if you're going to be in literature in English the foundation mm-hmm. of literature is important yeah right that's what I'm saying it's like I agree with you that that there my son is a sophomore in high school. Um, he's not reading Moby Dick. He's not reading uh, Don Quixote. He's not reading Shakespeare. He's not reading any. He read a one Poe, Edgar Allan Poe thing last year as a freshman. Um, so I think school has kind of changed. What, what my son is reading now are um, modern literature and poetry that addresses that that are written from a black perspective written from uh lbgt perspective Uh, i think a lot of what what modern high schoolers um are being assigned now is are is literature that that wants to um instill in them a sense of community and inclusiveness and um, then he's got a good so teacher who I think might be ignoring shift. the curriculum <laughs> because I mean just as recently as when I was teaching you know I literally I had to teach I had kids who had a third grade reading level in high school and I was having to teach them like Moby Dick the Great Gatsby and don't get me wrong I love the Great Gatsby I think it's Fitzgerald great book but like oh my gosh like they but it is interesting. That's a good school that your kid's going to then, or, or, she, or he's well, got it's not it in Tennessee. So it teacher. might, it, there might be, you know, it might be a regional thing. Like it I might would be. Mix, um, because like he read, I, and most high school students, I believe read um, Eli Wessel's night. Yes. Right. Um, but you know, who knows um, in some of the Southern states that might be thrown up upon the book burning pile along with no I, I, I had that one too so that we we were hillbilly but we weren't that bad I mean I've, I've seen arguments from UK school teachers that when introducing kids in school to Shakespeare they shouldn't be trying to teach Julius Caesar they should be trying to teach Romeo and Juliet because it's 
themes that you know kids will understand more. You know, to a falling in love for the first time, well, arguably, but yeah, you know, that's that's, that's the but when you the point of it, isn't it? Um, but I remember you know twenty years ago when I was in you know comprehensive, the UK equivalent of high school, um, we were studying um, of mice and men, uh, view from the bridge, um, and things like that. You know, stuff that doesn't really talk to a fifteen-year-old living mm-hmm. in South Wales. You know, in the in the in the mid noughties it's early noughties saying that you know it, it was written, uh, yeah, depression era America. It's like, why are you saying the dust bowl in the plains isn't relevant to a Wales kid? Come on. <laughs> Apparently, no, I don't, I don't think it was. No, um, Kelly Mockingbird we studied that. Well, I didn't study that, but my teacher recommended I read that because the other class was studying it. It's one of my favorite books, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, but yeah, it's um. Is it? Oh, I I love Harper Lee. Yeah, I did not read. I I refuse. You said you know that the. Yeah, I have not. I have I not refused. read it, and I am not going to read it. Same. It, to Kill a Mockingbird was a one-off singular book. It has no sequel, and it never will. As far as my brain is concerned, I refuse to destroy my memory of that book by reading anything that came after. Well, I think schools have. Um... You know, I think a lot of the things has to do with choices in in picking literature that have uh, socially redeeming value. You know what I'm saying? Um, I think that's why that my kids uh, learning about um, uh, you know reading poetry, that's poetry slam or whatever, uh, or not or you know, nonfiction books written by people uh, black men who've been wrongfully uh, put on death row, that type of stuff. It's the same thing when when I was in high school. Um, you know, we read To Kill a Mockingbird and all that stuff as well, you know, but, um, you know, there was a time there, the late 80s, early 90s, I guess, when all of the girls at my school were suddenly obsessed with Sylvia Plath and and um, because it spoke to them, you know, it was probably their, outside of Emily Dickinson, the first female author they had ever been instructed, you know, to read in school. Uh, but, um, but, you know, uh, reading about a young woman, you know, who's suffered from depression and mental illness and things like that resonated with a certain uh, group of girls and, and guys too. Um, and so, and, and it was taught in school as a kind of, um, as a, uh, not, not for just its literary merit, but for it, for it, its societal, um, you know, impact and, Anything that can teach kids, you know, that they're not alone. Reading fiction, and and this goes for I'm sure all of us have read books of fiction that they where they can identify with the character and um, and say, oh yes, I feel the same way, or this author is expressing um, feelings that in, in words that you know I've never been able to express myself. You know that type of thing. Yeah, you identify with the with the author. Interestingly enough, for, for myself, I found that my reading habits have changed um, pre-pandemic and I don't want to say post-pandemic because as far as I'm concerned, it's still going on. Um, you know, pre-pandemic and the pandemic era. You know, prior to early 2020, I was reading, say, 85-90% non-fiction and 10-15% fiction. But since the pandemic started, I found my reading habits have completely reversed. I'm now reading far more fiction than non-fiction. I think it's for that escapism um, that you get from, from, from non-fiction there. I read a lot of very light um, 
what you know quote unquote light urban fantasy kinds of things because I'm like the world is depressing enough I don't necessarily always want to be like bombarding my brain with more um negativity in terms of because like a lot of nonfiction, nobody really writes about here was a perfect little town where everything went well and everybody was happy and everybody grew up to be a ripe old age and died of their sleep in their sleep of a ripe old age of 92. You don't write a nonfiction book about that. You know, you write the nonfiction books about the terrible tragedy, the awful events, the, the, the horror. And at some point your brain just kind of goes, yeah i'm I'm, yeah misery upon misery and misery (laughs) give me something fluffy yeah i want something totally fluffy that doesn't hurt my head Mm -hmm. yeah urban fantasy um um fleming the bond novels that escape great escapism as far as i'm concerned um look at my shelves if you will so i started reading yeah um sci-fi i started to get back into um stuff like Mostly Star Trek novels, I'm going to be honest about that. Now, we all know true crime has exploded um, in popularity, right? Uh, do you guys um, find yourself reading any true crime books that you like don't have to read? or uh, Because that's the most popular genre. I used um, to, but the writing is usually terrible. And as, you know, to my aforementioned pothole example, most true crime novels are, again, one, they aren't edited by anybody as far as I can tell. And they're sort of written by people who, um, again, they wouldn't pick up a paintbrush and think that they can paint the Sistine Chapel, but they send eight text messages an hour so they think they can write a novel. I gave up my true crime reading a while back, primarily just because anybody could write a book all of a sudden and there was books everywhere. And everyone I picked up, it was like, I'd get three pages in. I actually got a library card specifically because I was reading so much junk and wasting my money buying books where I couldn't get past the third chapter because it was so badly written. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to get a library card. I'm going to rent this from the library. And if it's good enough that I actually want to reread it, because almost every book I have in my collection, I've read it at least three times. Like if I have a book, I've read it multiple times. Um, if I want to read it again, it's like with, then I'll with, buy it. It seems like there's a mad scramble of, of uh, authors, true crime authors, to write any book at, to find a true crime case somewhere anywhere that's never been written about before and so you go to your local barn, barnes and noble and you will see a selection of books about every single conceivable murder case that's ever existed right um and um because that seems to be the comp- competition find a case that's not been explored fully and, and put out a book about it and even and then at, at even at like a micro level you you now see all these books that are um famous murders of wisconsin famous murders of indiana famous murders in wyoming you know so you have local historians now going into their region and the this is i don't know if you see this um, oh yeah you do see this in the uk as well because i think someone like um 
Neil Story even has written some of these like, yeah. um, uh, you know, regional true crime. Let's let's talk about every single murder that ever happened in my hometown. Yeah. You yeah. know, or yeah. in my state. Like, let's mine this misery for for whatever we can um, because it just sells and sells and sells and sells and sells. Yeah, it, it, it t- tends to be in the UK that a publisher will do a series of them. So Pen and Sword um, will suddenly start releasing a series of books like this or an Amberley will and stuff. So, you know, oh, yeah, I got pe- right next to me where I'm sitting, I've got Foul Deeds and Suspicious Deaths Around Swansea from Pen and Sword. That's a few years old. Um, I've got from Sutton, True Crime, South Wales Murders um, by Bob Hinton. That's a good few years old. And yeah, it will, will be that they'll just, you know, they'll, they'll just do a series of them over a few years. And then they, you know, may, you know, and then a new publisher will do one, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, we do get those. What you in the UK, I'm, I'm probably because of our contempt of court laws and stuff like that. The rush seems to be when there's some kind of a, a, a trial, a murder trial that catches the headlights, the first person to publish the book about it after. Um, normally a journalist um, who, you know, helped break the story or really covered it or something from one of the national newspapers. They'll basically, as soon as the, there's a guilty verdict in the trial, they'll announce a book um, for, for, one of the, for one of the major publishers normally. Um, that tends to be the issues in the UK. Yeah, that happened in the that happens in the United States too. Obviously, you know, um, when BTK was uh, convicted, there was immediately a book uh, come that came out by the lead investigator of the case or something like that. There was then a second book that came out uh, from the uh, journalists at the Wichita Eagle newspaper who had been covering the BTK case since the 1970s. That it's. Uh, attorneys probably have book deals but that's the second thing that they do they agree to represent the client and then they go get a book deal right yeah, it, it, yeah it, it's, it's rarer in the uk uh, we don't really get um the lawyers writing books you sometimes get police officers involved in the case doing a book but it's normally after they've retired a few years later it's very rare it's quite close to the case um it's normally journalists uh, in the uk who mm-hmm. publish the publish the books and stuff um Going back to me asking, you know, in terms of my true crime reading, um, I, I think I've, I've normally got like one true crime book on the go every few months, but I don't read constantly. I might dip in and out of it, you know, maybe spend, you know, a few hours a week reading it and stuff like that. Because, you know, at the moment I'm reading um, A Case of the Salmon Sandwiches by uh, M.W. Oldridge or Mark Ripper, as he's uh, more commonly known. Um, I've, I've recently read. Um, Adam Wood's book, book The Watchmaker's Revenge. And um, yeah, I, I do like reading some obscure cases that have got a little something interesting about them. But, you know, I've never been a massive fan of modern murder cases as such. You know, I've got some books on some modern cases and I will read them eventually. But it's the, you know, it's the, you know, it's the pre, pre-war um, murder cases that interest me, you know. Yeah. The gag of a Christie, from a fictional point of view. Right. Okay. Well, I guess that sort of sums up our general perspectives on literature and how we read. I guess so. For each of the books going forward that we do choose to showcase on this show, we'll be 
that gives the, the listener sort of an outline of how we approach books and what our literature philosophies are. Uh, we all have, you know, bias. Now we sort of laid those out. So everybody kind of knows where we're at. Um, so I guess the first book that we have chosen to read for book club is going to be The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream by Dean Jobes. And that will be showcased on the next episode of Rippercast. Until then.